Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. And we also admit that in our own strength, we are powerless to do anything more than agree with it. We can't live this out unless you help us. And so we pray for your help now to have clear understanding and then to find the strength and courage within us to live our lives the way you have asked us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. How's the, how are the slides coming there? There we go. Oh, okay. So the title of the message this morning is No Good Deed Goes Unpunished. Some of you guys are having terrible flashbacks of your childhood looking at that picture. The subtitle is something like this, Suffering for Doing What is Right. We're turning the corner in our, our long series on First Peter, and we're going to start a few messages here called Doing Good. It's all about how, even though it seems so common sense, it is a high priority for those who follow Jesus Christ that we should be committed to doing what is right and doing what is good. But this series and the way Peter teaches it also reminds us that in the process of doing good, you're not always going to have a good experience. Doing good will often come with a very high price tag, and so we should be prepared for what that's going to be like. In German law, there's something called, I didn't take German, but should I even try? It's that, that thing on top there, Unter something, Hilfe something. And it's a German law that requires any citizen, when they stumble upon another citizen who is in need of rescue, that you have a legal obligation to attempt the rescue. In other words, if somebody's in a burning car or being attacked by a dog or being held at gunpoint, you have some legal obligation to intervene and try to help that person. I think that's a really cool law. In the United States, while we may have a moral obligation to help our fellow citizen in need, there is no legal obligation. In fact, it's, it's been found out that most Americans are rather hesitant to help a stranger who's in need of rescue. And really the main reason for that is not that we're rotten, selfish people, although I'm sure that's a contributing factor for everyone outside this room anyway. But I think one of the main reasons people don't want to help is because they're afraid the very person you help is going to turn around and sue you because you did something wrong in trying to give that help. And that's why in the United States, there have been some rules or laws set up called Good Samaritan Laws, which are meant to offer some legal protection to those who try to help you by pulling you out of a wrecked car or something like that, even if in the process of doing that they end up harming you inadvertently, it is intended to protect you so that you're not afraid of the legal implications of trying to be a good friend to somebody else who's in trouble. And there have been many, many ridiculous lawsuits on the books now of people, even good friends, who tried to rescue each other and got sued. That's just the way that America seems to be going. And so it's understandable. I hope that somehow we in this church, regardless of what the legal implications might be, would be people who are committed to doing what is right and what is good, no matter what the cost and this message, and this whole series, in fact, is here to remind us that sometimes while we do that, that saying is really true, no good deed goes unpunished. 
Let me just see. Raise your hand if you've ever tried to help someone and they've, like, attacked you back, you know. You're just sitting there trying to do what's right, give them some good counsel, warn them about some impending danger, and they are just resenting you and attacking you and bad-mouthing you. Would you raise your hand if you've ever been part of an experience of this kind of unjust suffering? All right, some of you, it's so painful you can't even raise your hand right now in public. I think it's a lot more than what just raised our hands now. I, I think a lot of us have gone through that. And if you haven't, I have a newsflash for you. If you're living faithfully for God, that experience is definitely ahead of you in your life. And so let's look at the passage for this morning. First Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ, the Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I want to just walk with you through this text and make a few points that I think are important for us to learn from this. And the first is that that Peter seems to be affirming there is some protection offered to us for doing good. Some protection in doing good. He asks rhetorically in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? I think there's a lot of truth in that question. And what he seems to be saying is, if you are committed to doing what is right and good in the lives of other people, if that's the kind of person you are, then there will be fewer people out there in the world who will seek to do you harm and attack you. And the truth is, I I think that's right. It's a lot harder to attack a nice person than a jerk, isn't it? I mean, who would you rather punch in the face? Adolf Hitler or Mother Teresa? The guy who doesn't hold the door open for you or the guy who does? And the one who actually does it a little longer. You know how some people, they check behind, if you're like five feet, you're on your own, buddy. But some people actually wait for you to get to the door and hold it, and you're like, thank you. Just the other day, we were at Great America, and uh, I, I was riding the, the big red car ride in Wiggles World with Zoe, I looked down by my feet and I found a nice leather portfolio there with a palm trio stuck in there. It's a really nice phone. It goes for at least a hundred bucks on eBay. And, you know, but instead of hearing cha-ching, of course, I, I began to think, and this is years of Christian training, you see. I began to think, if that were my phone and someone had found it, what would I want? Now I thought maybe I could hand it over to one of these sort of... Uh, semi-apathetic workers in the bright yellow t-shirts, and maybe they'll do something with it. But I decided to search the phone, and I found a number, number one on the speed dial. I called and said, did you or someone you know lose a phone? And the guy said, yes! Where'd you find it? Where are you? He was an hour away. Obviously, he had been in a fight with his wife because she had lost her phone. And uh, so he asked me if I would personally walk it over to guest relations, drop it off so that he wouldn't have to re-enter the park to get it. And my, my brother and some others like, well, you could just give it to one of the parking employees. But I said, you know, if this were my phone, I'd want someone to actually care for it all the way up to that point. And so I walked it over. I got a free meal because the, the worker rewarded me for being honest. But he said, listen, when you drop off the phone, leave your address and I'm going to take care of you, buddy. 
I said, you don't need to do that. I, I'm glad to do it. And he said to me, man, I was really hoping someone like you would find the phone. And I, you know, that was a reward unto itself because I just kept thinking, that's, that's the effect Christians ought to have in the world is that there is this joy in the hearts of others that people like us are out there, that we exist. People who would do something right. And it just gives you a sense that maybe the world isn't as messed up as it is. And you know the thing is, when you're committed to living like that, people find it kind of hard to attack you. I think even Hollywood has understood this principle. Have you noticed in every movie when the protagonist is about to do something really mean to someone else, like break up with them or kill them? The script requires that the would-be victim has to do something heinous themselves so that the audience feels better about watching them get hurt. For example, if your protagonist is going to dump their girlfriend, that girlfriend has to be found cheating on him or being really callous so that later on, when he runs after a prettier, more lively, funnier girl, we as an audience don't feel so guilty for cheering because, oh, they deserved it anyway. Even Hollywood knows that it's a lot easier to watch a bad person get their comeuppance than to watch a nice person getting attacked. And so there's a measure of truth that if you commit yourself to living right and doing what is good in God's eyes and people's eyes, you will collect fewer enemies and you will endure fewer attacks over the course of your lifetime. Now, we shouldn't just gloss over what kind of person Peter is addressing here. He's addressing people who are zealous for doing what is right. I'm not talking about your average Joe, uh, at least I'm not that bad kind of person. We are talking about somebody who is zealously committed to doing what is right. Now, I would just ask you this. How would the people closest to you describe you? Are you one of the black hats or the white hats in the old cowboy movies? Are you one of those people of whom others around you say, you know, that right there, that's a good man. That's a good woman. You know what we're talking about when we say good man or good woman? Is you can count on them to do the right thing. You just know this about them. You have this confidence. Is that the kind of person that others would describe you to be? Because if that's how zealously committed you are to doing what is right and upstanding and good, then I promise you in the, in the Lord that you will collect fewer enemies and endure fewer attacks over the course of your life. But we've got to move on to acknowledge that there is no money-back guarantee about this. There is the reality of unjust suffering. I treasure that picture. I had it in my collection for a while, and I needed to share it sometime. So found its way into this slide. What a great picture. It says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Now you see those words, even if. That's an acknowledgement that it's a rare experience, but it's a possible experience. Listen, you could do everything right. Your hands are clean. You have dotted your I's and crossed your T's. And still, there are some twisted people out there who no matter how good you have been to them, will attack you. I can't say I fully understand the psychology of such a person, but I have run into many of them. I think in a lot of cases... Those people are hurt people. And you've heard me say it many times from this pulpit. Hurt people hurt people. A lot of wounded people end up being real big jerks themselves. World-class jerks. People who no matter how much you're trying to love them, all they have is venom and spit in their hearts for you. 
Have you ever just come across it? Look, I don't need any more drama in my life. I, why should I care whether you live or die? But I'm getting involved because I love you. And here you are trying to poke my eyeballs out. What is with you? What is your problemo? I've wanted to say that to so many people for the course of my life. Like, really? Why do you feel like you've got to attack someone who's just trying to help you? But there are people you will encounter in this world who, though you have done everything right, will still come back and try to get at you for some reason. And it's interesting that Peter says, don't be afraid, have no fear of them. Why does he address that? Because I think one of the most natural responses when we encounter someone like this is that it creeps us out a little bit. It makes us afraid. Specifically, it makes us afraid of what they might do to us. My brother was once involved in an auto accident, and the fault was somewhat questionable. But the person he hit didn't have the proper documentation to own that car and was going to get in some trouble, and he didn't have the money to fix it properly. So he was really mad, and he looked at my brother in a really menacing way, and he was like, I'm going to find you. you know, and, and there was this threat, just really murderous threat breathed towards him. And I remember my brother sh- sharing with me, now usually my brother's kind of a tough guy, but he said, I'm kind of nervous, Dave. And that made me nervous because usually he would blow something like that off. But he goes, this dude is looking at me like he's going to follow me home and he might know where I live. He actually took a roundabout way home. Just because, you know, think about it. When you have somebody out there in the world whose intent is to do you harm, it's a bit scary, isn't it? I mean, you honestly wonder how far they'll go to get after you. But in a more general sense, it's also kind of scary because you lose your innocence and the the veil is pulled away and you say, you know, it's kind of scary that there are people like this in the world who at some deep level are so twisted around and bunched up that they want to hurt people who are simply being good. Now what's interesting is God does not... Now listen, that person's problems started way before they met you. That... That serious brokenness in their humanity happened before they ran into you. And the interesting thing is, God doesn't tell us we have to fix those people. Instead, he he says to us, trust me, do not be afraid, and do just like I tell you, and you will get through this thing. And perhaps in the process, that person may be changed. He doesn't command us to fix them, but he commands us not to be afraid. Well, easier said than done, right? So we have to ask, how is it that God could simply say to us, hey, when someone's out to get you, don't be scared. Just press on. I hear things like that. I go, man, it must be easy to write the Bible. Just say the craziest stuff that comes to your mind, and it'll just be true and biblical. If If you're paying attention to the Bible, it will trouble you. If you're asleep, you think the Bible is kind of a harmless book. If you wake up, the Bible will seriously trouble you. And so I wrestled most with this question. How does God just say to us, don't be afraid? Here's what I really believe that God is saying. He says, listen, it's not just don't be afraid of them. But you see this painting of these soldiers charging into the melee in, in, in in a war. And how scary would it be? armed with nothing more than a sword, just charging into a bunch of other guys who want to kill you. And the most important thing for a soldier under those circumstances is not to break ranks and run off on his own because he will be picked off. Staying together and making the charge is so important, but it's the most counterintuitive thing. 
That's why soldiers endure training. That's why there are live ammunition kind of obstacle courses where real rounds are going over your head because if you never experience it, you're going to wet yourself and get into the fetal position the first time someone's trying to shoot at you. We need that training because what a soldier and what a Christ follower are supposed to do under duress are usually very counterintuitive things. If we just did whatever was natural, it would often not be what God has told us to do in that very situation. Now what God acknowledges here is that we will feel afraid. That's not what God has a problem with. It's not the feeling of fright which concerns the Lord, but what we do in the midst of that fear that concerns Him very much. When He says, do not fear your fear and do not be troubled, that is actually a quotation from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 to 14. Or I'm sorry, 12 to 13. And, and it's a very inter- it's basically, I'm not going to show that because it says the exact same thing. Do not be afraid and do not be troubled. Those were words spoken from the prophet Isaiah to a king named Ahaz who ruled the southern empire of Judah when Israel had had a civil war and split up. Now, the thing about Ahaz, the interesting backstory that I'll give you quickly, is that Ahaz was being threatened by Syria and by the kingdom of Israel. Both kingdoms had united and were very strong militarily, and they, they were promising to invade Judah and take over. Now, he had raised up his army and successfully defended one onslaught, but he knew that he could not endure a second attack. So here he was as king, worried that his kingdom would be overrun, And what does he do as a strategist? He goes and knocks on the door of the king of Assyria, who was even bigger trouble than the Assyrians and the Israelites would be. He was the greatest invader in the ancient world, and this is the guy that Ahaz seeks to make an alliance with. Of course, the king of Assyria is more than willing because it makes it very easy later to take over. So he makes this alliance, and in fact, Israel and Syria are rebuffed. And to Ahaz's way of thinking, the day is saved. He had been a shrewd king, he had made a very strategic alliance, and now Judah was going to be okay. But God raises up the prophet Isaiah to say to him, You have sinned here. I know you felt afraid. What king would not be afraid when two enemy nations are at his gates threatening to invade? It was not the the fear which was the problem, but what you did in your fear because you dishonored me by not trusting in me. What God is saying to us is that in our fear, we must set apart Christ as Lord. What we must do when we're afraid is to say, I'm afraid and that feeling of terror is very real, but I will at this moment remind myself that I have a Lord and Master, and I will not break ranks and run off in terror on my own instincts, but I will do precisely what my Lord and King has commanded of me in this situation. What does Lordship have to do with terror? It has everything to do with it. It is at the moment when you most feel like running away or cowering that we must, in obedience, walk forward in the direction which God has given us. And that's not an easy thing to do. God has no problem with us feeling afraid. But he says, be very careful what you choose to do while you're afraid. Because fear often causes us to do the very things which disqualify us from God's protection and God's blessings. Now, if you're not buying it so far, maybe a a little more of a contemporary illustration will help you understand this principle. You guys want to play that for us there?
Let's get that sound going. About three minutes of that clip ended up on the cutting room floor just so I could save a little time, but I think it was worth showing for a reason. You know that little journalist who fights with the typewriter? He was way out of his element. But he had someone shadowing him who lived in that world, who could protect him. He demonstrated already several times. Yet despite all the demonstrations that Bourne can protect him, when it really mattered, he could not trust him because the fear overtook him. And he said, I think that someone's coming. I think I can make it. And what did he do? Bourne told him, stay right there. And he bolts. And what happens to him? Well, you know how that, that, that movie goes, right? He, he dies. I, I'm glad that it wasn't as graphic on this screen because I don't want to offend you. But here's the truth. When we're scared, we actually start thinking maybe we know better than God. Maybe God stopped paying attention. Maybe God's got his wires crossed because I, I hear the footsteps coming. I want to run and everything in us says I will take matters into my own hands. I know how to get out of this situation. And the problem is what God tells us to do so often seems messed up, wrong, broken. God, I can't just let this go. I can't turn the other cheek. I can't pray and not act. I can't just wait here, can I? Is that really what you want me to do? Will I find safety if I do it the way you say? We don't trust him. And so many times we break ranks and we run ahead of God in the midst of trials and we get more hurt than we needed to because somewhere along the way we stopped trusting God and we started trusting ourselves more. That's why it's so important, Peter says, in the midst of great trial and fear, you must set apart Christ the Lord as holy. You must acknowledge that he knows way better than you what is happening all around. He sees what you cannot see, and he has the ability to protect you in ways that you cannot protect yourself. When you're under pressure and you're afraid, do you buckle And do you run from God? It's a really important question to wrestle with. Now, as we move into verse 15, he says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I think what Peter's saying is, no matter what's going on in our lives, every last one of us who follows Jesus publicly is always on the witness stand. Every single day, Your life is making a public statement about Jesus Christ. For some of us, it's not like we're giving Christ a bad name. We're just not giving him any name. For some of us, the public testimony of our lives is that Christ is really a marginal fringe figure. Like a hobby maybe or a distant relative that I'm kind of fond of. He's not really someone who reorders my life. I'm not going to go and change my schedule because of him, but I really like him, and once a week I hang out with him in this room. And the truth is, for some of us, that's as far as we have gone, and the public statement of our witness is saying something very important about who Jesus is. Every single day, by the way we choose to live and respond to life, we are on the witness stand making testimony for Christ. The question is not whether you will speak for Christ, but what it is you are speaking every single day. And so what Peter says is not, you know, prepare a really good apologetic brochure and then knock people over the head. 
Ooh, I'm glad you asked that question. Sit down for an hour. Boy, do I have an answer for you. I don't think that's the kind of answer which Peter has in mind. But he's saying, look, don't just let your life inadvertently make a statement you don't want to make. Be prepared. Think intentionally about the statement which your life is making. Many times it will be a verbal statement because people will ask you why you live so ridiculously. Why do you forgive people so easily? You know, I know some people who are criticized because they're too forgiving. And people say, you're like, a, you're like a doormat. You're going to have people taking advantage of you all the time. You should be more aggressive and assertive and revenge-oriented. Why are you like that? People will ask you to explain yourself many times. And it's important that we know why we're doing what we're doing. We have a prepared and intentional answer that explains why we live this way. And how interesting that Peter keys in on hope. Because what he's saying is, the real testimony is that I could not live this way if I didn't have a hope that someday I will get real justice and I will get my reward. Because so often, to live faithfully for Jesus is to lose out in this world. It is to let people walk all over us. It is to get slapped in one cheek, and then if you're going to obey Jesus literally, you're going to get slapped in the other one. Go ahead and slap yourself on. See if it feels good. I, I get into a fighting mood every time I slap myself. That's how I wake myself up when I'm driving, I'm getting sleepy. I'm like, ugh, you know? Because it's not an easy thing to be slapped. Tell me how that feels when you endure it. Because for most of us, we, we don't have the Christ-like natural reaction to that. But he says, listen, there is hope for us that even if you get slapped around, one day you will be vindicated. God will lift you up and say, this is the way I wanted my children to live. It was not easy to go the path of faith, but you will be justified. This is our hope, and it's the only explanation for why we can live the way we do as Christians. If you take hope out of the equation, we're just the dumbest people in the race. That's all we are, right? And I'm not exactly standing in line to be among the dumbest people in the world. I don't think we're stupid. I think we are greatly hopeful that there is a God who is keeping score and he will make it right one day. That's not my job. And as I get out of his way and endure unjust suffering, God will finish the game his way. He will have his victory one way or the other. Now before we wrap up here, I feel compelled to key in on this. This, uh, I'm sorry, this last verse right here. Look at that. What a strange little clause. If you're not paying attention again, you're going to miss this. But he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good. Listen, if that should be God's will. I don't know if you paid attention to that the first time you read it, but that also really bothered me all week. Because here's the question you have to ask yourself. How can it ever be the will of a good God that his faithful followers should suffer and pay a price for doing what's good? Doesn't that somehow disqualify God from being good? How could it ever be that what God wants for us is to suffer for doing what is right? To pay a price for that. Here's what I think 
Peter has in mind when he says that. There are a number of reasons why I think that God would want us to suffer even when we're doing everything right. There's a million of them. I'll give you two quick ones, and then we'll develop the answer to that question a little further as the series goes on. But one reason I can think of right away is sometimes God just wants to know that we love him no matter what's going on. When we suffer unjustly and still bless and praise God, it is a way of proving the purity of our devotion. It's a way of saying that I am not a fair-weathered friend of God. But you can throw curveballs at me, you can hit me in the head with an errant pitch, and I will still hold my ground because I don't love God simply because of the good things He gives me. I love Him because He has already given me so much, and I love Him because of who He is to me. I mean, would you raise your hand if you're married? Okay. Also raise your hand if you've got somebody who's a significant other. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> kind of think. Now, how exhausting would it be if that person made you prove every day how much you love them, right? It'd be exhausting. But once in a while, you just want to know, will you love me even when the chips are down? I've talked to men who were about to make a very difficult financial decision. They were going to do the right thing and be responsive to God, but it would cost them a great deal of money. And the thing that frightened them most, listen, was that their wives would be so angry they might leave them. I can't, I can't lose that much money, Pastor Dave. I mean, I can do it, but my wife is not going to see the situation the same way. And it makes me wonder, what's going on in your house? Are you buying the devotion of your mate? Or are you secure in it no matter what? In the early years of my ministry here at this church, I used to travel a lot. You guys might remember that, conferences and networking meetings. And as I traveled to all these different places, it was my practice that on the way home, I would buy a small souvenir for each of my kids from wherever I was. I did that in part because my parents traveled a lot and never brought us anything. And so I just kind of said, Mom and Dad, I know you'll hear this. I'm not bitter. But I just wanted to do things a little differently from my young'uns. So I would buy a little magnet maybe from the state I was visiting or a bag of Skittles if I ran out of time at the airport, you know. But something. Daddy would come home bearing gifts. But as the number of trips and the number of children went up, my wife and I realized we couldn't keep up this habit. So one day I called them from out of town and said, Kids, Daddy can't bring anything home anymore except myself. <laughs> and they kind of said, Aw, well, we understand, Dad. Be safe coming home. And they were trying to have a good attitude, but I could tell they were disappointed. And I have to be honest with you, driving home from the airport, I was a little nervous because all the time when I come home from a trip, my kids squeal and they run to the door when they hear the garage opening. Daddy's home! And they jump into my arms, and I love that moment. It's what gets me through the long flight delays. But I was a little nervous because I was thinking, are they going to be a little apathetic today since i got nothing to offer them? And I can't tell you how gratifying it was to hear the squeals and one of them even fell running around the corner. Just, and they jumped in my arms and it wasn't until much later that one of them thought, oh, by the way, did you happen to bring us anything? And I thought, I can answer that question now because I know where I stand with my kids. They don't just love daddy's wallet. They love daddy. You know, the truth is they could say that all they want, but once in a while, don't we need a situation just to make sure that's true? I can't think of a better way to establish that I love God for God 
then when I endure suffering and will not reject him, will not make him the one who bears the blame for the drop in my fortunes and my circumstances. I think there's a second reason that God might will for us to suffer even for doing what is right. And that is that it produces in us a longing for shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word. If you have Jewish friends, you probably hear them. It's just like a kind of a, a synonym for hello or, or goodbye. Shalom, right? But it really has a very rich meaning. And I've said this before to you. It means, and get this in your heads now, listen. Shalom, the peace of God, theologically is a way of saying it is the way things are supposed to be. You know, I'm convinced that most of us, look, look up here at me for a second. That's you and me, all right? Most of us, we look at a picture like that, and the first instinct is, well, we've got to tear it down and build a new house. And that's because I think that a great many people inside the church are busy at work every day building a little utopia for ourselves. Some of us are engaged in a lifelong quest for the perfect life, the perfect car, the perfect abs, the perfect kids, the perfect house. Everything is always in progress, but I see the end of the tunnel in sight. I know when I'll have arrived, everything is perfect. And the unperfect things, the imperfect things get jettisoned. Ah, oh, I don't like this jacket. I can't wait to get a new jacket so I can throw away the old one. And we're always in process of recirculating things because we believe somewhere deep in our gut that a perfect heaven on earth is possible in this lifetime. Now in the church, we're kind of ashamed to admit it, but when we examine our lives, that is in fact how most people, whether we're Christians or not, are actually living. We want a perfect life. And for many of us, because of where we live and what God's given us, it's possible to actually build that illusion and convince yourself that you're on your way. We who live at least here in suburbia have so many things to hide behind so that we can live in the foggy dream, don't we? Our gated communities and our manicured lawns and our children with their college educations and good GPAs and extracurricular activities. We can start believing all the world is a youth soccer league. I mean, after a while, it's like a dream. And we don't want anything to wake us up from this dream that I have a good life. And we sometimes high-five our wives and husbands and go, yeah, it's so good to be us, isn't it? Have you ever done that? Is it just me and my wife? Sometimes we just high-five each other. Dang. It's so good to be me right now. And the truth is, those are joyful moments. But listen here. It is unjust suffering that God often uses to wake you up from that dream. He says, hey, wake up. You're driving a car right now. Wake up. Pay attention. Don't get lost in the dream because that is actually not the real world. It is when we encounter unjust suffering that we realize the world we live in is not a manicured movie set. It's actually a pretty messed up, broken place. The fear that wells up in us when we encounter a truly wicked person, an unjust person, that boss who's just evil, you know, that coworker who's just, you know, you know what I'm talking about. They're made out of pure evilium. If you look on a periodic chart, they're made out of pure evilium. When you see a person like that, it makes you start going, Maybe the world isn't Disneyland after all. Maybe the world is actually distorted. And things are not the way they're supposed to be. Nothing will wake you up to that 
the way suffering does, especially unjust suffering. And what that will do if you're a follower of Christ, that reality check, it should light a fire in you. What Bill Hybels calls holy discontent. And you say in the Lord, so help me God, I will do something to make this wrong thing right, if God will let me. This will not stand. Things shouldn't happen this way in the world. This kind of injustice is wrong, and I want it to be right. And the truth is, if you're busy building your utopia in suburbia, and you're oblivious to the real brokenness of the world, you will never have that holy fire lit in you to live for Christ in a broken world. You will end up being absorbed in building your paradise here on earth. And it is the experience of unjust suffering that jolts us into wakefulness and says, listen, there's more going on here than your perfect little life. God has a plan for you, and it involves making right so much of what is wrong in our world. Longing for the shalom peace of God. I've found that it is suffering that makes me hungry for a better world, both here and in the world which is to come. And so we welcome suffering even unjust suffering, because in God's hands, it has a redeeming purpose, doesn't it? So I'll wrap up simply by asking you a few questions. Are you suffering right now? Are you going through something? And perhaps it is, in fact, undeserved suffering. Somebody is just out to get you. And you've asked the question, why, over and over and over. Why, why, why? But maybe you've never paused to actually let God answer that question. (laughs) I'm trying to tell you why, but you just keep asking the same question over and over. You want to know why? I have a purpose in it. So I'll ask you a few questions. As you're suffering, let me ask you, are you zealous today to do what is right? Is that your commitment as a Jesus follower right now? Are you that kind of person who others would say, man, they're zealous for what is good? I can count on them, eyes closed, to do the right thing no matter what it costs. That's an important part of the equation, and it's something we need to ask the Lord to put in us. Also, despite your feelings of fear, have you committed yourself to obeying God in faith? When you seek counsel, sometimes people give you the advice you don't want to hear, and you always seek a second opinion, don't you? I mean, that's what I do. What should I do? Forgive them. Let me ask someone else, what should I do? And you're waiting for someone to go punch him in the nose and run. But no Christian ever tells you that kind of stuff. So I'm asking you, have you had the faith to do it the way God told you, even though everything in you is just railing against that? That's not the way the world works. It's not going to work if I do it God's way. i got to do it my way. Have you obeyed the Lord in the midst of your fear and your suffering? As you do it, what's going on inside of you? What's going on inside of you? Are you finding that, in fact, your love for God doesn't depend on what have you done for me lately? But whether the chips are up or the chips are down, you joyfully realize you still love God no matter what. If you can say that, then the suffering has already found its purpose, hasn't it? What a blessing it is. And maybe what it's produced in you is an awakening inside your spirit that this brokenness in the world needs fixing. And I will commit my life 
with this holy discontent to do something for God and not just build a heaven here on earth for me and my family. I'm going to invite you to bow with me in prayer. We're going to invite the praise team to come up and wrap us up here. I don't think the kind of persecution we endure is people with torches and pitchforks lining up at our door asking to have us send our children out to be killed. I mean, that's not the kind of persecution you and I will endure. But I guarantee you that if you will live for Christ in this broken world, suffering will come. It will come. And in that suffering, you will make a very loud and public statement on the witness stand for who this God is. What is it that you and I will say through our lives and through our lips about Jesus Christ? Anyone can testify in the good times. But what testimony will we give when we are called to suffer? And does not this God who has died for us have the right to ask us, to endure suffering for his sake from time to time. To do it with our mouths closed, just like his son did. And somehow through that obedience and faith, find blessing at the end of it all. So wherever you may be in all of this, I'm going to leave it to you in a few minutes of quiet to come before your God and offer up a prayer. And then we're going to sing the song together and close. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.